Today on Something You Should Know, how to deal with those embarrassing, awkward moments we all have that make us want to crawl into a hole. Also, how money affects your mind. It's often so totally irrational. In one experiment, they gave people a menu for a restaurant called Studio 19 and asked people how much they'd be prepared to pay for a meal there. And then they gave exactly the same menu to another group of people and told them it was called Studio 97. Suddenly, people were prepared to pay much more to eat at the restaurant with the higher number in its name. And if you want to sock away money in a savings account and not touch it, put it in a bank that sounds far away, like the Bank of Scotland. Because even though you can just get that money online, it feels as if it's further away. It means people are likely to leave it there for longer. So in a way, you can trick yourself. And the power of appreciation. You'll have a whole new appreciation for appreciation when you hear this. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. This is episode 360. And let me point out that actually few, if any, of the 360 episodes of Something You Should Know are dated. Unlike, say, a news or a sports podcast, the content of Something You Should Know episodes are, it's really timeless, evergreen. So if you're relaxing or you'd like something to listen to as you go about your day, just remember we have a large collection of episodes for you to go back and listen to whenever you like. First up today, tell me this hasn't happened to you. Okay, you're standing there and you're you're shaking hands and you're saying goodbye to somebody and you're going to walk away and then you both realize you're walking together in the same direction because your cars are parked in the same (laughs) parking lot. Or this, you, you burst into a meeting room only to find that it's not your meeting. Or you're in one of those conversations, you know those conversations where it's more silence than dialogue, it's just awkward and there's nothing going on. Well, those are all awkward situations and they are a part of life. And if you're the one who made the mistake, you, you might feel like crawling into a hole. But it's important to note that typically it's not the awkward moment that's the problem, it's how you interpret it. Joshua Clegg is an associate professor of psychology at John Jay College, City University of New York, and he's researched this whole phenomenon of awkward moments, and he has some advice for dealing with those awkward moments. Know that they're normal, first of all, and don't assume you've ruined everything, because you really, you probably haven't. Everyone's done this. You're not an idiot. Everything is going to be fine. He also suggests that you call it out, that you... Say, oh, this is awkward. Uh Uh-oh, awkward. Acknowledge awkward moments for what they are, and it often just, just lightens things up. Don't run away. Diffuse the situation now, because if you don't, it will always be awkward whenever you see that person or those people again for all of eternity. And get out of your own head, because when someone says you have spinach in your teeth, It bothers you a lot more than it bothers them. They're not particularly offended by the spinach in your teeth. They're just wanting you to know that you've got spinach in your teeth. You're just a little freaked out because it's now the topic of conversation, but it will pass and no one will remember. And that's something you should know. 
So every time you go by a gas station, you see the sign with the prices, and the price for gas always ends in nine-tenths of a cent. And you've probably thought to yourself, you know, do they really think I'm that stupid that I don't see what they're doing here? Clearly, they want us to see the price as a penny less or specifically nine-tenths of a penny less than it really is, that we see the big number and we think that's the price. And the fact is, we all do fall for that to some extent. Not because we're dumb, necessarily, but it's because uh, our brain processes money and financial information differently. It's really quite fascinating, and it's more than a little odd. And someone who's really explored this is Claudia Hammond. She's a broadcaster for BBC Radio in London and author of the book Mind Over Money. So, Claudia, what is it about money and finances that makes us think and do uh, such such odd things? I think money is difficult because when you've got money, it gives you lots of opportunities, and that's great. But I think that money is something that we find endlessly perplexing, and I think that we tend to all think that we're good at spotting, say, what's good value and what isn't, just as most of us think we're above average car drivers, and yet we can't all be above average drivers because somebody's got to be average and somebody's got to be below average. But likewise, we think we're really good at spotting deals, and it turns out that we're not very good at spotting deals. And so all sorts of other things can influence the decisions that we make about money and about price. So In one experiment, they gave people a menu for a restaurant called Studio 19 and asked people how much they'd be prepared to pay for a meal there. And then they gave exactly the same menu to another group of people and told them it was called Studio 97. And suddenly people were prepared to pay pay much more to eat at the restaurant with the higher number in its name, which isn't isn't a rational thing, but something that that we all do. So I think we're almost aware that we don't always behave rationally with it, and that makes us all the more obsessed with it. Well, that's really stupid to think that you would spend more money at Studio 97 just because it's 97. Yeah, it's extraordinary, but it's a, it's a thing called um, anchoring, and it's a psychological process that's been really well demonstrated, that, this, that irrelevant numbers can make a difference to us and that we will make predictions based on those, which, which just does seem like the weirdest thing. But for example, in a study looking at car auctions, if a really expensive car had just been sold, then even if the next car was a cheap type of car, it would go for more money. So if you had a Rolls Royce and then the next car was a Mini, the Mini would go for more money just because there was a Rolls Royce before it, which uh, again shows just how irrational, but often in predictable ways, we can be. Well, but we're also fighting the people who know this stuff and use it against us, right? Yes, that's absolutely true. So there are plenty of strategies that uh, shops will use to try to part, get us to part with our money. You know, they want us to spend their money. And so one of the things you often see is that uh, items in shops and online are often laid out in threes. And there'll often be a cheap one, a one that's a little bit more expensive, and then sometimes a really expensive one. If you think of something like laptops, you get a cheap one, then next to it a kind of mid-priced one, and then a really sleek and shiny, beautiful one. And the only reason that expensive one is there is to try to persuade you to go for the middle one instead because that seems a good compromise. So in experiments, if you only have the cheaper two, half the people will choose the very cheapest and half will choose the other one. But the moment you put in the third really expensive item, 
suddenly that sways people's opinions and twice as many will go for what is now the middle item when they were never intending to spend that much money. And so we do need to be really careful when we're shopping and to, and to watch for the strategies that might be being used and, and whether there are other things around that are influencing us on, on where, whether we think something is good value or not. Yeah, I remember hearing that restaurants do this with the second most expensive wine. Yes, yeah. They often, often people choose the second most expensive wine because they don't want to look as if they're choosing the cheap one. They don't want something really expensive. You know, lots of us don't know very much about wine and, and don't necessarily want to spend more on it. And so people don't want to look mean. So they often choose the second one thinking, oh, well, that must be good. And actually, because restaurants know this, they often, the second price one isn't very good value because so many people will go for it. And in fact, if a, if a place is any good, then in their house wine, they should be choosing something that's that's perfectly nice. And so now I, I often go for the very cheapest wine of all now, just assuming, well, it's probably going to be fine. And nine times out of ten, it is. Yeah, right. So what are some of these other uh, other things that, that people need to be aware of that, uh, that, that we happen automatically and unconsciously, and yet we fall for it pretty much every time? Yeah, there's all, there's all sorts of things where we... Um, get things slightly wrong. I mean, one is called the endowment effect, which is where we overvalue things that we already own. We like things that we already have. So um, people would rather, you know, trade in their car for more money and then spend more money on the car they're replacing it with than trade theirs in for less and save money on the new car. And there's, there's no good, good reason for doing that. But we really like things that we already own. And so this means that when people are trying to sell things online, for example, people will often put a reserve on and they'll often overvalue the thing they're trying to sell because we assume that because we have it and we liked it and we wanted it and we already have it, it must be worth more and that other people will also think that when, of course, people won't necessarily um, think that. Another mistake we make is to, um, when it comes to saving, we tend to think that, uh, all of us tend to think that in the future, we'll earn more, we'll save more, and we'll be better at spending less. And, you know, gradually, if, if people get promoted, they might earn more in the future. But, you know, who knows what will happen with different industries in the future. But when it comes to saving more and spending less, that's probably not going to happen at all unless we, we change. So just as we all tend to think that we'll have more spare time in the future and we'll be more organized versions of ourselves in the future, that won't happen either unless we change something about ourselves and, and, and the way we behave and make a very conscious decision to do that. And so that means that people tend to save less now because they think, oh, we're going to do it later on. It'll all be fine. I'll do that later on. And the chances are we won't. You know, we, we don't really change our habits very easily unless we make a really conscious effort to do so. Is that just, just optimism? You know, we think things will yeah. be fine, so yeah. we just, uh, we just yeah. go on our merry way. Yeah. yeah, one of the strongest cognitive biases, as we call them, is, is the optimism bias, that we just hope that things will be fine and, and think things will be fine. We often also think that the future is quite far away, and just the way you phrase it can make a difference to that. So if someone's going to retire in 10 years' time, that feels like quite a long way off time to save up and sort things out. But if you think of it as, I don't know, 3,652-ish days instead, that sounds, although it's a bigger number, it sounds quite close, 3,000 days, sounds quite soon. And that if you, research has shown that if you, if you frame things in a different way like that, if you just change the wording, it can make it the future seem nearer and then you'll start to plan and, and save up more instead. So uh, we're entering the holiday season and so what about... 
traps that we fall into when we're buying gifts and things, which is, you know, this time of year when we buy probably more gifts than any other time of year. Yes, I think, I mean, I think when it comes to, to buying gifts, particularly at the last moment, people can, you know, find themselves uh, panicking and not necessarily buying the thing that, that, that a person will, will really like and actually want and value. And that uh, maybe, you know, buying things like experiences can make a, a difference and more of a difference to people's well-being. So treating somebody to a nice day away somewhere could be more effective, if you like, in, in making them feel happier, which is what we all want, than buying them uh, an item, buying them material goods. And there's, there's really good evidence that that's the case. I mean, the good thing about buying gifts is that also, if you look at the evidence on well-being, it does show that spending money on other people is a good thing. Um, and that giving gifts to other people does make us feel happier. That in, in one experiment, they gave people at nine in the morning, they stopped people in the street and they gave them an envelope with $20 in it. And they said to them, you've got until 5 p.m. to spend this. And half of them were told they must spend it on themselves. And half of them were told they must spend it on someone else or give it to charity. And they measured people's mood. And at the end of the day, at 5 p.m., they had to meet up again. And they measured their mood again. And the people who had spent it on someone else actually felt happier and had a better day than the people who spent it on themselves. So, so the good thing about the gift season is that um, buying things for people and giving, giving nice things to other people does make us happier. But I think it's easy to, to panic and to think that you need to buy the thing that, that looks expensive rather than the thing that's more thoughtful that they might really, really want, which is what they'll really care about. One of the things uh, parallel to that that I've heard recently is that uh, we should spend more money on experiences than things because we get more satisfaction from that. And then I've heard that, well, maybe that's not always true. I guess it depends on the experience and what the thing would have been. Yeah, it depends on whether it goes well, obviously. You know, a bad experience is not going to be a, a good thing. And it does depend on the thing because sometimes the thing can lead to more experiences. So if you didn't have a car but then get a car, then that could enable you to connect with other people more and to visit people that you've not had a chance to or to go out to the countryside and have a nice time. That could lead to experiences. So that might be a good thing to buy. But, yeah, and it's absolutely true that the evidence does show that experiences improve our well-being more than owning things. And one of the reasons is that with an experience, we anticipate it more. We spend more time thinking about what it will be like. You think about what a weekend will be like more than you might think about what it would be like to have a bigger TV. You might want a bigger TV, but you're not going to think about the experience and imagine it in the same way. And also, experiences often connect you with other people, so you might be away or out for the day with them. And then when you get back, you've got warm memories to, to look back on. So even though it seems like you know all the money's gone in one go, whereas the thing you could be still enjoying, on the whole the experiences are giving people more pleasure. And what's really interesting is that, that you know, the group they're calling in the millennials now, the younger people, are now spending more money on experiences than on things, which the evidence suggests that they're doing the right thing. I'm speaking with Claudia Hammond. She is a broadcaster for the BBC in London, and she's author of the book Mind Over Money. So we've, we've talked about how we're all kind of deluded and mystified and manipulated by some of these thought processes and how we think about money. But how, how do we use this to our advantage? Yeah, definitely. So I think to try and uh, save more money, you know, one of the things you can do is to try to you know, reframe the way you think about the future. And also it's been shown that 
sometimes financial advisors will say to people, you should just start afresh, you know, start again with a clean sheet and from now on you'll save lots of money. But research has shown that actually it's more real, people make more realistic plans that they're more likely to stick to if they do look back to work out, at the past to work out, why didn't it work the last time they tried to save up? Were there some, what were the unexpected expenses that, that crop up that always do? And could they take that into account somehow and come up with a more, um, you know, a more realistic uh, way of saving? There's been a really, uh, a really clever uh, experiment in the uh, US that the psychologist uh, Richard um, Thaler did, which was called Save Money Tomorrow, where people committed that when their salary went up in the future, they would save a little bit more money. And people, we don't mind promising future money. We don't like promising money now, but we love the idea of pay rise in the future. So we think in the future, we won't care if we save a bit more because we'll have that extra money, so it'll be fine. It won't, it won't feel like a penalty now. And so they got people to commit to saving in the future, and it was really successful, and people were able to save much more. Another thing people can do is to, that if people's money is in an account with a name that sounds geographically far away from where you live, then people are less likely to dip into that money because even though you can just get that money online, it feels as if it's further away. So anything that makes the money feel less accessible and more of a bother to get means people are likely to leave it there for longer. So in a way, you can, you can trick yourself. So just naming the account, my Yugoslavian account, makes it harder to get? You could call it that, or choosing a bank that's got the name. You know, choose, choosing a bank that's in a, uh, that's got the name of a state that's miles from where you live will make it seem as if it's further away. Because we we tend to still have this idea that uh, in our minds we we slightly imagine that you know the money is that our money is actually there in in the bank, and that our little pile of money is somewhere, and that it's not all just mixed up in a load of figures on a screen like you know we know in reality it's like that. But we imagine that our little bit is there. And so if you can imagine it's further away, you're less likely to dip into it. It is so weird how we process this kind of information when if you really sat down and stopped to think about it, it's nonsense. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. And there are all these little little cues and, and uh, little, you know, things that we don't actually notice consciously that are affecting the decisions that we make uh, all the time. Um, and we go around looking for information that confirms what we already think. We notice that information more, and that can make a real difference to what we end up saving, what we end up spending, and, and the sorts of judgments we make about money. Well, just the, the idea of name brands has always fascinated me, that people will spend more for a name brand, sometimes lots more, when you know the generic brand is exactly the same thing. Yeah, it is really interesting, and there's been some actually re really interesting experiments with um, with wine and with painkillers. And so, with wine, they they put people in a brain scanner and they fed them some wine through a through a straw. Probably not the best way of drinking wine, but they fed them it through a straw. And then they told sometimes they told them it was a ninety dollar bottle of wine, and other times they told them it cost only five dollars. And people not only said that they liked the wine that they thought was expensive better, um, but their brains actually liked it better as well. So there was more activity in the reward centers of the brains um, when they thought the wine was expensive. So they actually were, weirdly, were enjoying it more if they thought it was expensive. So, you know, the lesson from that maybe is to, 
to um, encourage your friends to bring treat to bring cheap wine round, but to tell you it's expensive wine. And then with painkillers, there was a fascinating study where we know that you know, the generic and the branded versions are very open about, they say the ingredients, and they are the same ingredients. So you might have you know, the same amount of ibuprofen or, or paracetamol that's, that's in a tablet. It's exactly the same thing. But one is a brand and will have you know lovely fancy box. Now what's really extraordinary here is that actually if people thought that they had the branded medicine, it did give them more effective pain relief. They, they gave them uh, tests of their pain thresholds and they had to put their arm in a bucket of ice water and they could actually keep it there longer if they had the branded drug and thought they had the branded drug. And so there, the placebo effect was being harnessed and the fact that they thought it was more expensive made a difference. So weirdly, with that one, if your headache is really, really bad, maybe you should buy the more expensive one because then it will be really effective or you need to get somebody else to give it to you and tell you it's the expensive one. One of the things, and, and I think maybe this, maybe this applies more to women than men, but that, you know, handbags, for example, or, or certain things that, that, that have status because they are such and such a brand that people will pay, and men do it too, I guess, with suits and things that just seems so ridiculous. Yeah, we do pay a lot of attention to the, the, the status that a brand can give us. And I think that that seems to be increasing more and more. And if you look at the amounts now being spent on more money than ever before is being spent on luxury brands that are really, really, really expensive. And so and I think it does apply to, to men as well. And it may be different, sometimes different things. But, you know, people people will like the brand of a, a certain brand of car more than another um, or a certain brand of uh, watch or, or anything that they think increases their status. But if you look at the research on materialism, if people want to buy something expensive in order to generate envy in other people and in order to get power, then actually it's not going to work and it's not going to make them feel any better or any better about themselves. If people want to buy the really expensive branded thing because they genuinely like it and think that that thing is really nice and will get pleasure from using that thing, then it can increase their well-being a bit. But it all depends on what it is you're reading into those brands. You know, we, we spend so much money and time trying to impress other people with the things we buy. And I, I want to ask you, <laughs> I want to ask you if it works. But, but first, uh, let me remind everyone that uh, you are listening to Claudia Hammond. She is a broadcaster at the BBC in London and author of the book Mind Over Money. So I think that, at least for some of us, we tend to buy things, you know, to impress other people. So if I buy, you know, a, a $20,000 watch, are people actually impressed by that? Are other people thinking, wow, look at that? I don't know that I would know a $20,000 watch if I yeah, saw I one. But exactly. You see, I wouldn't know what's a fake and what. Personally, I wouldn't know which is a fake and which isn't. So it would just look like a kind of, you know, big flashy watch to me. But it could could still be a cheap, a cheap flashy watch. So I think if somebody actually knows well enough to be able to spot which is a real one, then maybe somebody might be impressed that oh, this means they must have lots of money. They must be very successful. But they're probably more likely to just know that from other things about them. You know, they might know what their job is or they might know what their successes are. So I don't think trying to kind of, I don't think it's an effective way of trying to fool people into thinking you're successful. One of the things that people say is one of the dumbest things people do with money is buy lottery tickets. But but then again, you know, somebody does eventually win. So, you know, it could be me, could be just, just as well could be me as the guy that won. 
Exactly. And it's, it's absolutely true that, you know, the, the chances of winning, we all know, are really, 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 really small. And I think there that people, uh, to say it's irrational is in a way forgetting that people like the, the fun of that. And they like the permission to imagine that they might win. And the moment when the numbers come up and they're looking at the numbers and gives them a little while to, you know, imagine, fantasize about what that would be like and what they would do with the money and, you know, improve their well-being temporarily at that moment. I think the problem is if people then have to feel they have to carry on and on doing it. So I think if you are going to buy lottery tickets, what you shouldn't do is buy the same number every week. Because if you always buy the same number, you've got to carry on doing it because otherwise you'll have the regret if you found out one week that you hadn't done it and that it had won, you would know that because of the number and you'd have a massive regret about that. And we really, really hate regret. There's a very strong psychological aversion to, to regret. And so if you always do something different, then it means you don't have to do it every week and you don't have to uh, worry about that. I mean, some places have got around this. In, in, in Holland, there's a fiendishly clever lottery that puts, automatically puts everyone's postcode, their zip code, into the lottery. And so... Uh, you you can either buy a ticket, in which case you could win with your postcode, but if you don't buy a ticket, you couldn't, but you're always going to know which it is. And also, all your neighbours might win and you might not. So it's um, it's a very clever way of getting people to buy tickets. Yeah, I remember, I, I think it was the California lottery here that, that um, had a marketing campaign that I thought was very effective that, that said, what what would happen if your numbers won without you? But that's a brilliant, that's a genius campaign because there's very strong evidence that we we really hate the regret of what might have happened. And that is something that's prompting people into into buying tickets for lotteries. I would never check. I, if I forgot to play my numbers that week, I would never go look and see no, because what if... Never look, never check, never check. I wonder if that's ever happened. I, uh, I, I've never heard of that happening, but I wonder if anyone ever did always play and missed once and there were numbers won. Oh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are stories like that, just as you get the stories of the people who, you know, put it in the washing machine and then they try to find it and they try and piece the pieces back together and know that their numbers came up, but that they've missed out. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, we've, you've covered so much, but any other little things that, that you find when you did the research for this that was really fascinating that, that people may not realize? Uh, one thing I think is really interesting is that uh, paying friends for favors is not a good idea. And it seems like a nice idea because they're doing a favor for you and then you're giving them some money, which sounds kind. But actually, it's a mistake because the moment you do that, it reframes their nice piece of altruism as a financial transaction. And so then the other person will start looking and thinking, well, was this a good amount? You know, they, I, they changed, I'm helping them change their tire and they're offering me $20, but actually they'd have to pay a mechanic much more than that. And maybe it'll take me quite a long time because it's quite a tricky one and I could earn more maybe doing something else and have they given me the right amount. Whereas if you just thank them for doing the lovely thing and then maybe buy them a present later, you know, not money, but a present, you know, some flowers or some chocolate or something they might like later on, then everything will work much better and it doesn't bring money into the friendship. It just allows people to be kind to each other, which is a, a nicer thing. So I, I think that's a quite good tip that's come out of some U.S. research that's really interesting. That is interesting, but, you know, it's so right on when I think about, I think about that. I mean, when you say I'll give you 20 bucks to change my tire, you're putting a value on that that maybe is unfair and it's better not to put a value on it at all. Yeah, so weirdly, it's another case where it might seem irrational because you think surely getting $20 is better than getting no money. No, in fact, they'll leave feeling better if they got no money.
Well, it's interesting to spend a few minutes talking about money and how we relate to it and, and how money plays tricks on us. Claudia Hammond has been my guest. She is a broadcaster for the BBC in London, and she's author of the book Mind Over Money. You'll find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Claudia. You're a, a good interview. Thank you. Well, good questions, too. So Thanks. thank you very much for having well, me. And finally today on Something You Should Know, appreciation. We tend to show our appreciation for other people more this time of year than other times of year. And while giving gifts and throwing parties is great, appreciation is something that works all year round, both in relationships and at work. Consider the fact that appreciation is one of the top reasons people leave relationships and friendships, and it is the number one reason people quit their job. So giving appreciation is really it's kind of the glue that holds relationships and organizations together. In a work environment that fosters a culture of appreciation, the payoffs are big. According to consultant Paul White, when employees feel appreciated at work, people show up, they show up on time, there's less turnover, there's an increase in customer satisfaction, there's less conflict, there's more positive work environment, and there's just a zillion benefits to doing it. If you have any doubt about the power of appreciation... Go home tonight and start appreciating everything about your partner and watch what happens. And that's the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it with a friend. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.